Hello and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin and this is my co-host Joey. Hey, how's it going? And today we're talking about white noise. You, you probably don't know, but I may be one of the most prominent figures in Hitler's studies in North America. I'm J.A. Cake Gladney. I, I teach advanced Nazism over at the College on the Hill. So as you can understand, it's a great source of embarrassment for me that I don't speak German. Maybe it explains the dark glasses, but uh, best not to analyze it. As you can probably see, something happens between the back of my tongue and the roof of my mouth. After all, I require my students to take a minimum of one year of German. The urgency is the Hitler conference is coming here to the College on the Hill in the spring, and scholars from all over Germany will be in attendance. Do you think you can get me up to speed on the basics of the language by then? I also teach sailing. This is an existential American dark comedy. Directed by Noah Baumbach. The cast includes Al G. Rhythm, Kylo Ren, the director's wife, Greta Gerwig, and young Snow White. I watched this movie on Netflix. Joey, how did you watch it? I also watched this on Netflix. All right. Before we get started on our discussion about white noise, we will recap the events in our synopsis that was written by Joey. Go ahead, Joey. Jack Gladney and his wife Babette live in a small suburb town of Blacksmith with their four children from previous and current marriages. Jack is a professor of Hitler studies at the local college, and Babette teaches etiquette and reads to the old. They are a happy, normal American family living in the 1980s. Jack's friend Murray is a visiting professor and an admirer of Jack's occupational legacy. Murray wants to do with Elvis what Jack has done with Hitler. To help his friend, Jack and Murray give a sort of lecture duet, circling and complimenting each other in a grand display of performative education. One day, just outside of town, a truck collides with a train, and an ominous feathery plume of black smoke appears on the horizon. The kids are all scared, but Jack and Babette refuse to worry, and carry on as if nothing is wrong. The feathery black plume becomes a black billowing cloud, which transforms into the airborne toxic event. Jack, Babette, and the rest of the family are forced to evacuate which means gathering some emergency supplies, then driving quickly to join the long line of cars, also fleeing the airborne toxic event. On the way, the family car is running dangerously low on gas, so Jack exits the vehicle and pumps some. At the evacuation center, everyone tries to make themselves useful. Babette reads tabloids to the elderly, and Heinrich, Jack's oldest, charms the crowd with his knowledge of the deadly chemical at the center of the airborne toxic event. Jack discovers his brief stint at the gas station has exposed him and that he will likely die. When? Unclear. How? Also unclear. They will know more in about 15 years if he lives that long. While at the evacuation site, Jack finds Murray. Murray is also devastated by Jack's diagnosis and gives him a gun to take fate into his own hands. Overnight, the winds suddenly change and everyone must evacuate the evacuation site. Chaos breaks out with people running in every direction, getting into the cars and driving frantically. Jack follows a truck away from the rest of the people, through the woods and into a river. With Heinrich's direction, they escape and end up back in line with everyone else. 
Nine days later, the airborne toxic event has been dissipated by microorganisms, and everyone is safe to return to their homes. Throughout the other events of the story, Babette has been secretly taking pills. When Jack's daughter, Denise, brings it to his attention, the two of them try to discreetly investigate. Babette refuses to admit she takes anything, but her memory also seems to be fading. Eventually, Jack determines that the pills were not prescribed by her doctor, they are not listed in any medical textbook, and even the chemistry department at the college can't tell him what they do. He implores Babette to spill the beans, and reluctantly, she does. Babette has been suffering from a chronic condition in secret. She has been looking for solutions everywhere, but has come up empty-handed. She was so desperate that when she found a classified ad in the newspaper describing her condition, she jumped at the opportunity. This ad was for an experimental medicine that would solve Babette's problem. She passed every test and was an ideal candidate. But the research lab determined the pill wouldn't work or would be too risky, so they pulled the plug on the research. Babette still desperately wanted it, despite the risks. So in exchange for sleeping with the head researcher, he gave her all the pills she could want. The thing was, it didn't work. The pills had no effect on Babette, and her condition remains. What is this sword of Damocles that hangs over Babette's head? She is afraid to die. Jack reveals he is doomed because of his exposure during the airborne toxic event. Neither really knows what to do with the other's confession. They cry and kiss, but they are both shaken to their core. Soon after, Jack becomes obsessed with the pills Babette was taking. He is convinced they will work for him and rid him of his fear. But there are no more. They have all been consumed or thrown out. Jack is haunted by his diagnosis and of Babette's infidelity. He seeks to rebalance the scales by doing something drastic. He finds the man who Babette was sleeping with and traps him in a motel bathroom. There, he shoots him twice with Murray's gun. Before he leaves, he wraps the man's fingers around the weapon and is wiping off his own fingerprints when the man wakes up and shoots Jack. Babette, guessing what Jack was up to, arrives on the scene just in time to get shot herself. All three are alive, with the pill man being in the worst shape. Jack and Babette drag him to a local religious hospital. While being patched up, they ask the nuns slash nurses what heaven is like. The nuns tell them they don't believe in any of that stuff. They just pretend for other people's sake. Jack and Babette survive the encounter and return to their family. Together, they all go to the supermarket and join the magic dance of life. The end. There we have it. The events of White Noise will begin our discussion with our pros and cons. Joey, what did you like about White Noise? I think Adam Driver is amazing. He's really great in this movie. The whole thing is bright, colorful, full of life, which is very ironic. Um, <laughs> it feels very... A, a, there's a few very memorable, complicated, and fun scenes, um, which I think is uh, really makes this movie stand out. Um, it touches on a lot of timely, top, timely topics. Uh, it turns out aren't just about right now, but also about relevant at any time. And uh, I think Don Cheadle is a perfect Murray. He's so great. <laughs> I totally agree. I loved Don Cheadle in, his, in this role. I think this movie is boldly unconventional. It is unapologetic for breaking convention and not sticking to kind of the norms of what you'd see in a movie, which is risky. And I didn't love everything about it, but I appreciate this movie for not you know, being restricted 
uh, in its in its vision. I think the camera work is really intentional. Uh, it's uh, there's a lot of just stunning visuals that happen in this movie. Great performances from Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig, especially that long bedroom scene where she confesses her infidelity. That scene stretches on for like 15 minutes, and it's just the two of them bearing their souls. It's it's great. Don yeah. Cheadle, like we said, is fantastic as well. The three of them really headline this film. I love the set and costume design. I really felt like, I mean, I, I use the term loosely, but like a period piece. Like I really felt like this was taking place in the 80s and I liked everybody's clothing. They, they definitely felt like they were from a different time. There are some fantastic monologues in this movie that are delivered in a way where even if you don't really glean anything from what they're saying or anything meaningful it's just entertaining to listen to and to to see it uh talked about and i i think that my impression of that is something we should we should talk about as far as like whether or not they're saying anything uh, this movie also made me feel intense dread and suspense I don't really love feeling dread, but it feels like this movie was trying to get me to feel that, which I appreciate. This movie did make me feel something, uh, which I think is a good thing. That's good. So, <laughs> now let's talk about cons. Joey, what did you not like about White Noise? Um, this movie feels more like an homage to the book than instead of its own thing, uh, which to his great detriment. I think that the dialogue feels poorly delivered at times doesn't quite feel real um and there were times when this movie is like moving at breakneck speed f- like just frantic and trying to get everything they can in and also felt really boring i was checking my phone like multiple times being like oh when it, how much longer is this movie maybe it was because <laughs> i i knew it was going to happen because i'd read the book but I, for whatever reason i just uh i was both like like feeling like I was being jarred, like just kind of shaken, and then I would just kind of sit there and and let things happen. So it was a, it was not uh, I guess enjoyable in that way. What about you? <laughs> I felt like this movie was confusing. Uh, I think that's probably partially on me, uh, but also like this. I think this movie just is a little bit more challenging than most. The overlapping dialogue is overstimulating. And there was a lot of times where, especially when you're trying to take notes and like trying to extract meaning from this movie, I got kind of sidetracked in stuff that later I realized maybe really wasn't that important or maybe mm-hmm. the intention was for the dialogue to not necessarily be completely intelligible. Uh, so I don't know, it just was for me, it, was, it gave me this feeling of overstimulation and I didn't have any catharsis at the end. Uh, it felt like I watched this whole movie expecting it to get to the point and there's a lot of things that were brought up but i didn't have an overwhelming feeling of catharsis which made the long trek the journey through this film uh feel a little bit hollow i say that again very joyful that i have the opportunity to discuss this movie with you and kind of get into the meat of it so we'll see if that continues to be how i feel as we get into our overall section uh, and i'll pass it to you for that well i hope i can answer some of your questions i don't know if i can answer all of them so we'll see um i don't usually read the books for movies we review in the show um but this time i did i don't know what it was about this one specifically but when i heard about this movie it looked very interesting and it convinced me that i should read the book 
Um, and even after the movie came out, I wasn't like super excited to watch it necessarily. I was mostly like, well, I better watch it because I read the book. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know what's wrong with me. But um, anyway, I really enjoyed the book. I thought it was really great. Um, I've been thinking about it a lot. I really want to read it again and pick up all the stuff I missed the first time. Um, and I don't want to spend a ton of time, you know, talking about the book because I think it's kind of boring just being like, this was in the book. This was not in the book. Um, but it, it, <laughs> to me, this movie has a, a fundamental flaw, which is that it's trying to be the book. I think a good rule of thumb, one I use often, is that books and movies aren't the same thing. Comparing a book to the movie will almost always leave you disappointed. They are different things. Treat them differently. Based on an article I listened to from the New York Times, I know that uh, Blow a Bond, sorry, Blow a Bond Camp, Noah Bond Camp, <laughs> Noah Bondback, uh loves this book. Um, it's very personal to him. Um, his wife, uh, Greta Gerwig, plays Babette. So there's some pretty straightforward signaling there for me. Um, and uh, he, he and Adam Driver have worked together on many different um, projects in the past, too. So they're, they're like close friends. It seems yeah, like didn't Bombac, he do Marriage Story? Yes, that's right. Uh, yeah. Both Adam Driver and and Bombeck. So it really does seem like Bombeck really wanted to paint some of his favorite scenes from one of his favorite books without worrying about if white noise would suffer some loss from being translated onto the screen. And I think a lot is lost. Uh, the pacing of the book is so strange. Uh, that intro quote, I think, captures that feeling almost better than anything else. Um, it, that's that's that. I think it's a really that intro quote is actually a perfect example of some of the problems of the movie and some of the successes from the book from the movie uh that that whole dialogue that um uh adam driver that that jack gladly is saying uh to uh his german teacher is all in his head right this is all we all know these things coming into the thing he doesn't have to explain it to the guy but unfortunately you know when you're in a movie you can't hear what people are thinking unlike in a book um and also but also in the book Sometimes scenes just end that way. They're like in the middle of a sentence. He's like, uh, I also teach sailing. And that's the end. Like that's, yeah. that's, that's how the scene just is over. And you're on to the next one. And it's like, what? Oh, like, are we, that's how, that's how it's over. It's just done at this point. I think there's like multiple reasons for this, but it's, it's, it's kind of fun to just kind of like, while you're listening to the book or reading the book, being like, oh, I guess it's, we're done here. We're moving on. Now it's <laughs> on to the next thing. And it just, it feels like he, uh, that um, Don DeLillo, who wrote the book, uh, doesn't want to ever end anything, right? It, he's like, I, the, the endings are just cut off. We're, we're just going to end it in the middle instead of uh, mm. having some sort of like goodbye or something like that. Maybe you're catching on to what this, what this is really about. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I, uh, Don DeLillo's prose is really unusual. His jokes are so multi-layered and buried that it makes the act of reading far more enjoyable than I think the plot itself is. Sort of like how you were describing the dialogue and the monologues, how they're just fun to listen to. That's how the whole book is. It's just uh, every moment there's something that he's describing or something that he's, you know, a perspective that he's showing. And it's some he's using unique language. He's just using very strange adjectives, ones that you wouldn't necessarily use to describe different things. And it's um, it's very enjoyable just to kind of sit and soak in it um, more so than it is to find out what happens next, um, which is kind of different than a lot of other stuff. You know, Jenny and I just watched that show Kaleidoscope on, um, on Netflix, and that's one of those shows that is an example of, um, of a show that I want to just know what happens, you know, 
Like I don't really yeah, care yeah. so much about what's what's uh, what the thing is, and I don't think I'm ever gonna watch it again. But I just want to know what the ending is. I want to know how they get from A to B and and, and what happens. You know, um, it's all plot. And, like, yeah, it's all plot exactly. And this is kind of sort of the opposite. And you know, speaking of plot, um, this is something that didn't pick up on in the first time when I was reading the book, but when Adam Driver recites it, um, uh, it came to me in, in full force. All plots move deathward. This is the nature of plots. Political plots, terrorist plots, lovers' plots, narrative plots, plots that are a part of children's games. We edge nearer to death every time we plot. It's like a contract all must sign. The plotters, as well as the targets of the plot. And, and this is so, this is such a, a good feeling to kind of make this click together because um, the book is so reluctant to ever start its plot. It's just like a bunch of things happening. And it isn't until like about halfway through that you realize what the story is really going to be about. There's all these other things that happen that they're like, am I supposed to be paying attention to this? And like, what am I supposed to care about and everything? And it's almost as if when I heard this the first time, when I was, listening to the book the first time and i i i heard this you know this uh narrative or this uh meditation on plots i was like okay i guess this book is about nothing and that was frustrating <laughs> but, but but later it, it all comes together because it's like oh um the reason why the this book is uh tentative to start its plot is because if you start a plot you have to end at some point um so right. it's very clever um anyway the dialogue is also very strange for me in this movie because it's taken directly from the book. It's like he's like reading from it, basically, which I think is kind of a strange choice to make. I mean, Dondolo's prose is certainly something worth celebrating, I think, something worth uh, giving ex like uh, like showing on screen. But I don't feel like it really synergizes with the medium very well. A lot of this stuff, again, happens inside characters' heads. so it's like. So when people say stuff out loud, um, it, it sort of characterizes them when that wasn't really necessarily how they might act, right? It, like I, I would, I felt more in that moment when uh, when Jack is explaining why he's taking his German lessons, he he feels very um, uh, like extroverted and um, you know happy to explain and you know just like willing to connect. When I feel like. The rest of the movie, and I think Jack in the book especially, is much more introverted and private. He's he's very he's not going to say this out loud because he's embarrassed by it. Um, so it's something that happens inside his head, right? But there's no way of doing that necessarily in a movie. So it kind of comes across weird. And then the other right, thing the, is like yeah, like when he's expressing that he's not good at German to his German teacher, the way he does it, it's like he's so open about it. If anybody's equipped to deal with the embarrassment of not speaking German at a Hitler conference, it would be this guy who's so, right. you know, confident and, and secure with himself that this is the type of information that he would just openly volunteer instead of keeping inside his head or feeling, you know, some other feeling way about it. insecure about it enough to go get German lessons. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I I was I was sort of torn on it because. And I, I do think that it's, it's kind of jarring, too. Um, but uh, I'll let you... Do you have any thoughts about the dialogue? The dialogue in this movie is really unique. 
it was surprising, I think jarring to me, how quickly everybody thinks. They react like computers with an instant ability to retrieve their response. And I think this is typified by the conversations between the children and like the family in general and the conversations between the college professors. Like everybody has something very, maybe not eloquent, but just a complete thought to inject into the conversation, even if it has nothing to do with everything else that's going on. And these things all overlap and conversations continue with each other, which is kind of cool. Like there's a, there's, there's kind of a uh, nonstop flowing to it, but it also like is complete chaos and, and it's like really hard to follow. N- not to mention that it kind of seems like everybody involved is blowing smoke up each other's asses. Uh, like a lot of the stuff I, I have trouble. It's like, is any of this even true? The mm-hmm. like, it's funny because the kids are saying things and you're like, ah, kids, you know, don't know what they're talking about, but they like to think that they're super smart. But then the professors are also saying that. And you're like, do any of these people actually know what the hell they're talking about? Like uh, <laughs> being so confident about like the, the best feeling in the world being having a woman peel like sunburnt skin off of your back and then having somebody else like not even question that but to say that oh I totally agree that's second best thing that's ever happened to me or whatever down in whatever beach it's like how are these people so on board with everything immediately while also not noticing when the conversation completely jumps in a, a different direction um, it's not clear to me that everything is important uh it some of it seems to be but also is none of it like i think (laughs) some of the white noise in this film because of course i had to be like oh what what will the the white noise be and i guess some of that is like this overlapping dialogue where it's like intended not to actually mean anything yeah i think that's a that's a pretty good observation i don't know I think each one has its own unique place, right? And the kids, the kids' dialogue is is fun because it sort of jumps around so much, right? They they, they switch tracks so quickly between different topics, right? And then somebody will say something, and it's not sure we're not sure if that's true or not. And then somebody will take that and run with it in another direction, right? And it just kind of goes back and forth. I I think. I think the the it's supposed to demonstrate the closeness of the family and how like they're constantly talking to each other and trying to like connect to each other. But it's uh it, like the so the actual like words in the dialogue aren't as important as like the fact that they are talking. Um, right. But it is a shame that like it's it's so quick. Right. I mean the thing is, uh, when you're trying to when you're trying to to uh, espouse something important, you want to say it slower. But when you're trying to say something that's not important, you'll say it quicker so that people like won't latch onto it, right? Um, so I think that's the kind of technique that that's being used here. But it's not, um, I don't know. It, it still like feels like there's something missing. Like there's kind of an emptiness at the at the center of it. Um, I, I'm not sure. But again, a lot of that is taken directly from the book, and um, maybe not from that exact scene. But it's like. Uh, in but in the book, it's given a lot more time to breathe, at least. Well, because you're reading at your own pace. Yeah, when you bring that up, having actually read the book, it does make a lot of sense uh, that these would be things in a book where I guess even when they're all bumped up, like bunched up against each other, you can kind of take it at your own pace. Uh, because right. at the beginning of this movie, I was pausing and being like, okay, who's talking about what right now? And then eventually <laughs> I was like, screw it. I don't care. Like, let's just keep right, moving. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think... 
I think that was the right um, instinct. And uh, I mean, the other thing that I, the movie does a really good job of is it can do multiple things at once, right? It, it can it can juxtapose two things. It can uh, have the characters acting um, while they are talking, right? In a book, you can't do that. They're doing one thing at a time. So right, like everyone um, can be talking about random normal life stuff while denise right. is digging through the trash and finding pills exactly exactly um yeah but i don't know i think the the pacing is kind of stilted it on the watching at least the very first part of the movie feels like watching shakespeare in a in a bad way where the actors don't really know how to inflect correctly it all feels like such a performance um i think later it's not so bad i don't know maybe if i got used to it or what but things just seem to fit better together it feels like they're responding better uh, kind of like how you're saying how people have like fully formed thoughts like right after somebody like in response to somebody else's it almost felt like people were talking or responding before the other person finished talking and that didn't feel it felt like they were reciting lines way more than they were like talking you know when when jack gets home and tells uh bobette that the the cars were here today. Like it was basically like yes. freshman move-in day or whatever. I was like, okay, wh- like that scene. Thinking back on it, midway through this movie, I was like, did the airborne toxic event happen before anything? And this whole thing has been people high on fumes and like they've been <laughs> acting really weird. I was I was waiting for the reveal to be that like everyone has been on like uh, you know influenced by these drugs or something, which is why right, everything right. has been so weird. But th- that's not what happened. Obviously, they've just that's how they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 supposed to be a reflection of real life, but it feels so so jarring, uh, so stilted, right? Like uh, off off center because it because it feels like they're all just kind of like dancing around through this like weird choreography. When it's um, uh, I don't know, I I think other parts of the movie feel more like a, like an actual dialogue where they're like actually talking to each other, where where they'll, they'll say something and then the other person will respond in a way that like is human. <laughs> yes. So. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I think that at the beginning, it's really bad. And then later in the movie, it gets better. Um, I don't know if there's specific actors that are doing this better than others or, or what. But it's it's just like um, it's it's something that you have to kind of get over um, if you're going to watch if you're going to enjoy this movie. Um, f- uh, the book is also pretty long, but not much really happens, which means the movie sort of hurries to get nowhere. Um, the result is sometimes like a frantic pace where characters are running around yelling lines at each other and other times where I was checking to see how much time was left, like I mentioned earlier. Um, but uh, while I was reading the book, I was, again, I was just happy to listen to what was happening and kind of soak in this. Whereas during the movie, there wasn't as many opportunities to do that because we're trying to get from A to B to B to C so quickly. Um, okay. So there are a few scenes that really stand out, right? There's a couple of them that, that, I really enjoyed and I really like seeing on screen and they have so much energy and color. Um, there's all these really delicate choreography that feels very chaotic and haphazard. I think it's really fun. Um, there's a lot of just lingering shots and complicated camera movements, complicated like movements for the actors um, while they're reciting these like very esoteric lines. So it's, it's very, um, it, it's a lot to watch and it's, it is fun to get swept up in it. Um, one of my favorites is definitely Jack and Murray's lecture duet, um, which is which is what I'm calling it. I don't know what you would actually refer to this as. Basically, I think that's a great name for it. Basically, um, 
Um, so Murray is trying to be the expert on Elvis, the same way that Jack is the expert on Hitler. So he says, hey, Jack, why don't you come in and give a lecture at my, you know, during my spot, and um, that will, like, uh, elevate me in the realm of, like, notable persons uh, within this department. Just, uh, I'm not exactly sure how this works. It's so, some sort of soft power move, basically. And so Jack shows up, and then he, as uh, Murray is talking about Elvis, Jack starts, like, saying, well, you know, Hitler also loved his mother. Uh, you know, it's kind of, like, <laughs> like, like complimenting his, his thing, saying, like, well, you know, Hitler and Elvis, they're not so different, you know, uh, which is hilarious and fun um and it, like the whole thing like he's spinning around and yeah jack has this black cloak that he wears and dark glasses that uh, um add to his mystique right this is actually a uh according to the book uh, a deliberate choice by his advisor he told him to do this so that he would appear more uh intimidating and mysterious uh which would give him <laughs> credibility in the in the in this realm which is hilarious so like it's it's a costume that he wears and he's using it perfectly he's tossing the glasses to the crowd he's like swirling about becoming like this black shadow you know uh like as he gets up on the stage it's really it's really is fun it's an amazing performance and this is actually one of the monologues that i actually did catch the meaning where the, basically they tie them together first through the fact that they had relationships with their mothers like the elvis and hitler did then how they each dealt with their mother's deaths which of course everything in this movie is about death so obviously they have to focus on that but then beyond that they focused on the fact that they both drew crowds and then he's able to pull from that this idea that crowds form as a shield against their own dying crowds like form to keep death out and to break off from the crowd is to face death as an individual uh, to face dying alone that's why crowds formed that's why crowds formed around elvis that's why crowds formed around hitler was to be a crowd and it's like that's actually pretty like cool like uh, it's like <laughs> the performance combined with the actual things that he was saying I thought was spectacular. This is a scene I watched multiple times just to take it all in because it's really done in a way that's uh, poetic and, and seemingly profound, especially uh, Adam Driver's portion of it. But Don Cheadle's also great. And to see them kind of unify in a way, like literally as he's talking about crowds forming, a crowd forms like people yes. rush in from outside <laughs> of the classroom to bear witness and it, it kind of brings about this awe and, and maybe while you're talking about like his advisor doing that it's almost like a facade to make him seem more important it's working i want to hear yes. what this guy has to say with his dark cloak and dark glasses and even don Cheadle's character when they, he passes basically the speech baton over to uh, adam driver he nudges his students say scooch over i'm gonna take this in as well and pops out a <laughs> cigarette so it all that scene just worked so well for me which and not to mention the way that it's weaved in with the the airborne toxic event because as he's gesturing about death and and crowds the train is rushing to or the, the truck and the train are rushing towards a collision and the way that he sticks his arms out where he's like to keep out and like he sticks his arms out in either direction, which kind of 
simulates the same motion that the arm in front of the train is making trying to stop the truck from <laughs> smashing into it it's all just so well planned out and so well executed i mean that's a scene that i i will return to just to watch on its own just amazing yeah yes and it, uh, it's 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 really great it's really great seeing that come to life like that i i was i was impressed and yeah i there's so many there's a lot of stuff like this in this movie where there's a lot of things that are just taken so carefully um it's just like it's so hard to adapt something like this because of how it's like the just the, the pure structure of it right and like you have to in order to get to that point you have to like do all this extra work but it's but I don't know. It's kind of a questionable whether it's worth it or not. Like, should this movie have been adapted at all? But I don't know. It's these kind of scenes make it make the case that it should be. You know, I agree. My, my one of my other favorite ones is uh, Jack getting his diagnosis. This is one of my favorite scenes in the book. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, too. Uh, so Jack goes to the uh, he's in the evacuation tent, right? He, uh, he everyone else is around and he goes up to the guy with the computer. Um, who is working for Simuvac, um, which is a simulated uh, evacuation uh, company. Uh, and they are there to practice on a real event uh, so they can better prepare for their simulations, which is just great. I freaking yes. love that so much. Anyway, he's there with a computer and, and Jack tells him, hey, I've been you know, exposed to uh, the, uh, the, the airborne toxic event uh, for about two and a half minutes. Um, and this is a, a even more ironic because there's plenty of other scenes where people are like with their windows down, right? Or people are walking around outside or, you know, like somebody like they have this horrible car crash that happens right in front of them. Right. And it's not like uh, or like, you know, the car itself, the car is not a a, a perfect barrier to the outside world, right? But but for whatever reason, him exiting the car and pumping gas for two and a half minutes is what exposes him to this thing, right? So he tells the guy, he puts it into the computer, and he's like, the guy's like, I'm getting bracketed numbers and lots of stars. Like he's he's telling him like <laughs> what the computer is t- saying, and he's like, uh, well, you're slated to die, and and like that's all it is, right? Is it, he's he doesn't tell him he's going to have these symptoms. He doesn't tell them what to do. He doesn't tell him. Um, how long he has or uh, like or anything right he doesn't tell him anything about what is going to happen to him he just says you're going to die and this is enough to send jack completely over the edge he becomes so <laughs> obsessed with the fact that he's going to die even though he's already going to and he's like well no more in 15 years he's like well i have to live into my 70s to know it's like like how old is this guy exactly like he's so worried he's gonna die when he's 70 you know like if you, lots of people you're lucky if you live to 70 you know so it's, it's so yeah he's like he's so obsessed and he's like if for whatever reason like whether he's just in complete denial that he was going to die or maybe uh this simply put things into relief for him uh, for whatever reason this was such a like a huge um uh like turning point uh in his life uh to simply get this diagnosis Meanwhile, in the background, there's that soft-spoken woman who's always giving the announcements, who is giving everyone in the other line good news. <laughs> they're always like, they're like hugging. Yeah, the other family yeah, is like, like hugging each other. Yeah, like, you're gonna be just fine. You're gonna be just fine. Everything is great. He, like you can see, Jack is like is thinking, if I had gotten to the other line, maybe I would have gotten a better <laughs> diagnosis. <laughs> uh, hilarious. It really, really good stuff. I, I really love that one. 
Yeah, well, I've, what I got from this was that the diagnosis is can't be trusted. This is like just seemed a complete chance that he was uh, getting told all this information, which also yeah. seemed completely uh, incomplete and inconsequential. Uh, so, which, yeah, it does go further to uh, point out the absurdity of Jack's reaction to the news because he takes this, you're going to die at some point in the future as, <laughs> you know, impending doom, even though that's not really an update to his status before the airborne toxic event. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, there, there are just a couple more. The, the other one is uh, Babette telling her secret um this uh you know visual masterpiece is amazing uh this is probably the most like darkly lit part of the movie um they're they're basically just in the bedroom and babette is is telling uh jack um why she's taking the pills which is called dialar um and uh what like where she got them from and the whole story um behind like her journey to taking them and then cheating on him with um another person and um uh, it's just this is very interesting i really appreciated adam driver's performance in this i felt like he captured that feeling of like betrayed husband really well um because he's so he's just kind of he's just sort of confused for, for the most part he's angry but he's like also very understanding right and he he like he's he's able to um like understand why babette would go through this right he understands what like uh, like what she went through um but also is you know deeply hurt by this um and yeah i i uh, he, adam driver is a, a really great actor he really brings that that the emotion to all of his roles and I, this is a really good scene of that especially when he ends up breaking down and crying um very it's powerful stuff and it's it, like i really liked that they didn't really cut away too much to like describe what babette was what was saying right it's all just kind of in from her perspective, from that, um, you know, basically from, just from, from her lips, instead of like showing a lot of visuals of what like the place was like or whatever, right? Uh, which is on purpose because Babette is purposely obscuring certain details uh, to keep Jack from um, uh, going out and, and doing something drastic, which he ends up doing anyway. But he, uh, all of that is just her story, and it's enough. It's this is my this is like the turning point of the book and the movie that's really really compelling and it's just her words uh that um that push this forward yeah i i agree i mean this is a scene that really is carried by the actors because you know they don't give them a lot of support i guess it's not like we're flashing back it's like oh in this scene i was this or like remember this it's all on them to just express themselves. And it felt like a genuinely traumatic uh, reveal. It was like, I did not enjoy revisiting the scene the second time, not because it's bad, but it's because that hurt that they're both experiencing through it is very plainly expressed. And and you feel that. And I think that that's just, I mean, it's a credit to everybody involved, but especially our actors to be able to, to, bring about that performance absolutely yeah it's uh i mean it's probably the it's probably one of the most relatable portions of the story you know a lot of this movie is sort of like uh elevated right uh, there's certainly elements of real life in it but this one in particular feels like the most like tangible in, in many ways um yeah uh, 
I, uh, the, so I really like uh, the setting, like you said, and the costumes. I think the performances all really pop in this movie. Don Cheadle is such a great Murray. Um, he, Murray is such a son of a bitch. He's so slimy. Like he's in the book. It's really clear that he wants to have sex with Babette. Like he's constantly talking about how hot she is to to Jack, <laughs> and uh, he's always talking about how much se- how much sex he used to have when he lived in New York. Um, and he's um, but he's like he hands uh, Jack the gun, and then he's like, "There's killers and there's dyers, Jack." Like he's like he's like. <laughs> constant like prodding him to, into doing something crazy um and, <laughs> and he's always got these weird opinions about everything it's like murray is kind of the epitome of like care of like uh don DeLillo character i feel like because he's he's like so entrenched in this like his own worldview about how everything works he has like an opinion and a philosophy about everything and he's like going to tell you about it uh if it ever comes up uh whereas like jack is more reserved and like kind of unsure about the world the uh, murray seems to have already already figured everything out and my one of my favorite scenes is definitely the supermarket soliloquy uh where he talks about how great it is to be at the supermarket welcome back shoppers it's comforting to know the supermarket hasn't changed since the toxic event in fact the supermarket has only gotten better between the unpackaged meat and the fresh bread it's like a persian bazaar everything is fine and will continue to be fine as long as the supermarket doesn't slip. Do you know the Tibetans believe there's a transitional state between death and rebirth? That's what I think when I come here. The supermarket is a waiting place. It recharges us spiritually. It's a gateway. Look how bright. Look how full of psychic data, waves and radiation. All the letters and numbers are here, all the colors of the spectrum, all the voices and sounds, all the code words and ceremonial phrases. We just have to know how to decipher it. It's so great. It's so funny. Like, <laughs> I mean, this makes, I, I mean, obviously this makes you think of Mega Mart, doesn't it? Like, yes. <laughs> It's, just it's not like nearly how... as whimsical or intentionally wacky as but a Mega Mart. Like, just but... like. Just the, the, the idea of a supermarket as like a place for art, you know, like as a gallery, yes. right? Where like there's so much there. I do really like, I want to point out that he says, uh, everything is fine as long as the supermarket doesn't slip, which is like a, a nice little nod to uh, the, pan- like the early pandemic when uh, there was like so much lost from the shelves, right? And there, yeah. we, go, we still have this problem today because of supply chain issues lingering from this but uh early on right things were just missing from the supermarket and it, it, that was like the people's uh uh most real uh sign that something was wrong <laughs> little and, canary uh, in the coal mine that there's no toilet paper <laughs> exactly <laughs> but yeah he's like all the numbers and letters are here every color you know all, like not not to mention the food or all of the like products that are available right it's it, it, like just the all of the sensations that are available to humanity are are here at the supermarket and like safely packaged shelves organized beautifully um yeah and the, all the shots of the supermarket look amazing every shelf is is completely full of everything yes. arranged perfectly and like really aesthetically nice um uh, rainbow colors the produce is just like falling off of the uh, 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 uh of the shelves and stuff it's all like arranged in perfect squares it looks so great and um yeah i just i just love 
this uh this thing um that that he goes here i think this movie is highlights a lot of what is uh i don't know just ubiquitous about american culture and one of those things is a supermarket um murray uh, in the book i keep saying this in the book murray is <laughs> always at the supermarket that's where he uh, when he uh he actually has, i think he says this um uh early on uh, right after the scene um Jack and him are talking about one of their colleagues who died while surfing. And Murray says, as soon as I heard the news, I came straight here. Because <laughs> the supermarket is the place. It's it's the meeting place. It's it's the only third place that exists in American culture. It's where you meet your friends. It's where you uh, engage in um, uh, the religion of America, which is buying things. You, you go there to... Um, uh, enjoy the fruits of everyone else's labor to, to see all of the things that America has brought to the shelves so that you can enjoy. And it's not just, a, a, you know, the, the purchasing of things or, or getting something to fulfill yourself. It's the enjoyment of walking down the shelves and, and seeing all the different colors and numbers and, and letters that are available to you. Um, it, it's, it's, a you know, it's, a, it's a transcendent experience uh, to go to the tr supermarket, to, to be outside of the real world into a place of pure fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> It's pretty hilarious because in reality, I freaking hate going to the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> right, which I think is what most people feel like. Most people feel like they want to just get in and get out, right? And the fact that that the supermarket is laid out in a way that where the things you want are not just directly in front of you is frustrating, especially in a world of pure like convenience that we're used to, right? Um, but you know, it's it's the act of doing it that I think is uh, part of that the pure american experience um, yeah no I and know. i get it like tr saying that like this is the height of places for american cultures is a real indictment on what we've got going on as far as community because this place that we all pretty much hate <laughs> is <laughs> the place because there's nothing else yes yes okay um I think my favorite thing about White Noise is something the movie does a valiant effort to replicate, um, and it's attention. It's the attention it pays to the specter of death. Uh, Murray says this. We're all aware there's no escape from death. And how do we deal with this crushing knowledge? How indeed. The movie presents us with several approaches to the problem of death. Now, let's be clear. This is not about what happens to you after you die. This is about the living mortal fear of dying. You know everything dies. Your parents, your pets, even the electronics in your house. All will crumble to dust, including you. And what? What can you do to stop this? Absolutely nothing. You can delay it. You can deny it. But you will die. Everyone does. This is the white noise at the heart of every life. This mortality is always at the back of everyone's mind. When will it happen? How? How long do I have left? If you look at it too directly, it is terrifying, especially since we Americans have conquered almost everything else. We control the weather in our houses. We can eat almost every food ever cooked or available at the supermarket. We can um, retreat into incredible virtual worlds. We've discovered the secrets of the atom and looked back in time billions of years. And it seems we are poised to do even more than this. But death still hangs over us. It's unclear if it will ever not hang over us. The more we conquer, the bigger death looms over our lives. 
I love that Jack and Babette, despite their unusual jobs and family structure, are such ordinary people, and yet their fear of death is extraordinary. They are obsessed. They can't stop thinking about it and worrying about it. It seems like everything they do is reflective of this fear. Jack has secured a legacy through his career by tying himself to the most infamous man in history, and Babette fends off old age with constant exercise. When, when death comes for them in the form of an airborne toxic event, they pretend it isn't happening. When Murray offers Jack the choice to be a killer or a dyer, Jack takes him at his word and attempts to become a killer. Most of the movie's comedy comes from how much they avoid death and how much how afraid they are of it. But are they really that crazy or irrational? Shouldn't we all be running around with our heads cut off? Why aren't we frantically trying to avoid death, clinging to every second and every minute, hoping that we will just get a few more? And what does it mean that we don't? Well, I mean, what do you think about this? I think the feeling is definitely universal, but I think it's ridiculous how much this movie, like what lengths the people in this movie go to, to involve death in every aspect of their lives. The the earlier quote we had about how all plots move deathward, yes. it's like, oh, how ominous. But it's also like, uh, duh. <laughs> it's like saying everything moves towards the future. You know, it's like, that's, th th yeah, like uh, that's inherent in it. Uh, and, and like, I mean, obviously they're supposed to be like satire, uh, satirizing this kind of fear of death. Um, uh, but I, th I think they take it obviously to, to, to do that, you have to take it to a ridiculous degree. So at a certain point, I, uh, I understand that feeling. I think we all do. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, I don't know if I could realistically see myself obsessing about death the way these people do these people can't <laughs> chill out for a second like take a chill pill but don't literally take a chill pill <laughs> uh, don't take a dialogue <laughs> yeah but i think that's i think that exact thing is the is the thing i want to examine most which is because i think what you're saying is the right way to think about it right like it's it's what they're doing is ridiculous they're they're over-exaggerating this. They're, they're looking for reasons to be afraid, right? But it's like, <laughs> death is this terrifying specter. It's this thing that looms over us. Like, to, to, to be like, oh, it's going to, like, it's, it's not real or, like, it's just this abstract idea is not the, like, the right approach. These people are, are normal people with this extraordinary fear, right? But it's a fear that everyone has. And maybe it's not to the same degree necessarily, but there, for whatever reason, why are we able to deal with that? Why is everyone able to deal with that when they aren't? Why do you think that is? I think a lot of people just straight up forget about death a lot. <laughs> like it's just straight up not something that they think about. And then you have to cope with it when you encounter it. Uh, that's why I like some people are just devastated at funerals because it, it's, I think it's because they go a long time without thinking about death in like the real sense, right? Like yeah. you can watch a TV show and be sad that your favorite character died, but that that's different from actually sitting down and contemplating your own mortality. And I think that we have a lot, a lot of ways to avoid contemplating death. That I don't even have to spend a single second of my life without having some, you know, call it white noise playing in my head to keep me from sitting down with my own thoughts and ever having to come to terms with the concept of my own death uh, or the death of the people that I love. I can just float freely with uh, 
you know, whatever podcast I want to listen to or whatever music or whatever TV show I want to watch and completely avoid that thought until I'm confronted with it at a funeral or something or, you know, when it happens in front of me uh, or whatever. But then I can return to not thinking about right. it. And I mean, I guess I think that's what a, a lot of people come down to, but I don't know for sure. Sure. But I think that that's, a, that's definitely an, a way to cope with it. It's, I mean, it's willful ignorance, right? Because this is, this is the, the point that the movie tries to make, right? Is that everything dies and everything is a reminder of death if you are willing to look for it, right? If, you, if, you're, if it's something that's on your mind, right, then everything will remind you of it because it's like, a, like you said, it's like a fact of life or the universe that things move from one, point, one state to the next. So when uh, you can extrapolate that, especially if you're an academic, it's super easy to do something like this, where, where everything kind of points toward a singular like, thought. Everything points toward this. Uh, everything in your life is a reflection of your fear of death, right? And I think that's kind of true in some ways. I think that um, you can, it's such a base feeling. It's, it's like one of the most primal um, like instincts that exists in animals and, and humans too, right? Is that um, uh, almost everything you do is some sort of thwarting of death, right? Whether it's trying to establish a legacy or trying to, um, you know, uh, uh, what's it like live longer by you know improving your health right uh almost everything you do is in some way trying to avoid this or to perpetuate yourself into the future um so yeah i i don't know i i think willful ignorance is a powerful tool one that we have lots of um examples of and lots of different um you know, I don't know what the word is exactly. Uh, uh, lots of different ways of dealing with doing it, right? We we have lots of different um, available options to be willfully ignorant, uh, whether that's just constant distraction, or you know, having a career, or or just like <laughs> <laughs> you know, having other goals in mind, right? That that are like, okay, well, I have this expiration date sometime in the future, but um, I will attempt to do these other goals before then. Um, uh, those become more important or something more pressing, right? I don't know. Um, I think that uh, you know, for some people, it's easy to dismiss this because they'll turn to something like heaven, right? They'll say, well, technically, right, I'm not going to die, right? But I think that just I, this is just another way of avoiding the question because at some point, even if you go to heaven, right, you will still be you'll still have to leave this earth. You'll still leave everything else behind. You'll still die um, in the earthly sense, right? And you yourself, the, the person you are today, is someone who's going to have to deal with that, not your reborn self, right? Not your reincarnated self or your heavenly self. It, it, the, the mortal fleshy self is the one that has to deal with this problem. So, um, I, I feel like that's just, again, kind of avoiding the situation. You can also kind of accept it, right? Um, but I don't really know what that looks like. Like saying I've accepted death feels very similar to if I was mugged, I would fight like hell. Like maybe you would, but maybe you just haven't properly visualized the scenario. It's hard for people to comprehend situations they've never been in, especially something as abstract as the end 
of your life, right? It is this real thing. We've come, fa- people come face to face with death every day, you know, some people more than others. But um, the idea of like you just stop existing, right? Or like you, you're, you are no longer able to act on earth. You are, your thoughts ha- are cease to be. It's something that I think is impossible for people to really imagine um, because you are constantly living. That's all you have to compare. Yeah. yeah. It's like, what, what, el- what else even is there? But I don't know. The way that I kind of cope with this idea of death is kind of the way I cope with anything. Everything changes. Change is the only constant, right? right. So you're, you're always going to be like, even the, the things that I have and I love now will be gone eventually, right? So I just have to try to enjoy them while I can, but understand that uh, even before I was here, things were different before, right? And it's like, I'm right now is okay. So I guess things turned out all right for this. Um, but I think that's just the mindset that I have. Um, you know, being a Christian, I believe that, you know, my faith will be the thing that it like takes me beyond death. Uh, but it, even that will, yeah, it, even that change, like you said, leaving behind, uh, the world and the state of existence that I'm familiar with is at the very least, uh, you know, maybe startling is taking it too far, but maybe at the very least, um, just so different that it's, uh, you can't help but be a little bit nervous. So yeah, I guess my, uh, thing is that I'm not as concerned with staying omnipresent with that thought. It's like my, my, uh, the way I think about it is that change is inevitable death is a change like many others and i'll deal with it as i deal with everything else you know in stride yeah i mean that's <laughs> makes sense right it's it, it's it's healthy i think to 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 feel that way and i think that the uh, of the aversion to it right feels like the wrong choice to to simply say oh this isn't going to happen or i don't have to think about it ever it simply uh, like avoids the the inevitable, right? And you will be less prepared for it when it happens. But again, you can be on the other end of this and just be obsessed with it. And then you become kind of a crazy person, right? And, it, and there's, there's no, it's not, that's not healthy either to be obsessed with, well, anything, but obsessed yeah. with death specifically, right? Um, because then you're no longer enjoying your life. You're simply fearing death. Yeah. And, and the other thing too, is it's really easy to be like, I'm chill with death until you're dying and when you're in the middle of dying right. it becomes a, i assume it becomes a little bit more real you know um i can't say that i've ever gotten like the indication that my life was about to end uh you know i'm you know i feel very fortunate <laughs> in that way but uh i think when confronted with your own mortality like that it it's impo- yeah like that it's a little harder to have a positive mindset um and i think that like the feeling that these people have in this movie becomes a little bit more understandable. Um, it's ridiculous that Jack is so obsessed with his impending doom that he might not know more about until he's 70. Um, but being faced with a more immediate diagnosis or immediate, uh, expiration date, I think, um, a lot of these coping mechanisms become a lot harder to, to deal with. And then you end up like the characters in this movie. Right, right. And I, I think there's just an element of our culture where we just pretend that we're just going to not have to deal with this, right? And there's even 
like movements within science and stuff and in like Silicon Valley where people are um, claiming that they can solve death or that they that, that that we'll we'll no longer have to die in the future, right? Um, which uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe that's true. It doesn't. There's no way to tell at this point. So yeah, it doesn't exactly appeal to me. Um, I think I'm, I was I'm no. born too late to get on board with earthly immortality. <laughs> I uh, I just think uh, no. It's certainly uh, I, I. That's kind of how I feel too. But again, it's hard to know, right? It's like when you get that to be that age, uh, you know, what, what the age when you so many things in your body start to go wrong and death becomes so much more of uh, so much closer to you, right? Even though it's it's always hovering over you, it, it, the the idea that it could be any day now, right? It makes you, um, uh, I think, may change your perspective. But yeah, who knows? Well, also, and and this is something that I, not everybody agrees with me on, but. A lot of times when I see people who are, you know, at the end of their natural life and they die because their body is just like, I'm done. You've been, I've been running nonstop. This heart hasn't stopped pumping for 90 plus years. I look, I don't, I'm not that sad by their death, you know, um, where, and I'm like, that's actually kind of a like massive success to have made it that far because at a certain point, like you've got diminishing returns on the the years that you're spending uh being held together by you know medication and uh, whatever else so um that's not necessarily a tragedy in that situation i almost look as death as like a sweet release or like a or a relief uh in the sense that you don't have to struggle to stay alive anymore you can finally rest um again easy for me to say that at 27 years old and not staring death in the face at 95 so, um, but that's, that's just kind of how I feel. I, I agree with you. And I, I tend to think of life as like, um, sort of like, a like a fair game or like a wind up toy or something, you know, like you're, it's just as far as you can make it right. Like every moment is borrowed time. Every moment is like, uh, is a, is time that you didn't have before necessarily. Like that was not guaranteed to you. So, um, uh, you know, it's it's sort of like a relay race or, or not like a relay race, but like just like a, a race in general where it's just like, let's see how far you can make it. You know, we'll, we'll set we'll set this up and say go. And then uh, it's a race to see how far you can go, uh, how how long you can run until uh, until until uh, that's it for you, you know, until you give up, basically. So it's um uh for me, it's like anything past, right? Anything past a certain point becomes less of a tragedy um and there there is so much pain at the end of life especially when you get so when you get to be so old right that um in some ways it's it's just nice to have that to know someone's not suffering anymore um more so than the like that they're still around right yeah and, you know people people change too right as as your faculties diminish um you aren't necessarily the same person you used to be um, and depending on your attitude toward your own life, uh, that could make you into a bitter old person, right? Right. <laughs> which isn't very pleasant, and you aren't enjoying your life, or and no one else is enjoying you being around. My uh, my the dogs that I raised with my family growing up are like really old now, and actually one of them just passed away last year, and it's it's I thought it was interesting to see the the different ways that they age because one of them is still alive 
he's blind his like back is all like shriveled up he like can barely walk <laughs> he can barely hear or smell i mean he is barely alive but he is a fighter he is hanging on his quality of life is like as bad as it can be but he is not going to die anytime soon or maybe he will but like he doesn't want to he's going to fight until the final second the other dog who's roughly the same age she was great like her life was like the normal dog life the whole way i mean she was getting older a little less energy but like she had all of her faculties and then her hips started to go and she had trouble walking and she was like okay i am not sticking around for this and then just died you know and i was like i respect that and that was her attitude too she was kind of sassy and didn't take any bullshit from anybody and uh and i was like that i respect that way of going um and i think it's like just uh, maybe i'm giving her way too much credit for choosing it (laughs) it could be some other medical reason why she didn't have a choice but the way that i interpreted that was like that's she decided it was her time to go and it was uh and she wasn't going to stick around for what the other dog was dealing with which she still had the faculties to observe i'd be like this is absurd that you're still alive (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's very interesting (laughs) that's funny which also yeah i mean now we're getting really morbid but like getting a dog or any pet at all is like signing up to witness the death of a loved one (laughs) eventually right which is like which I think is like part of this whole idea, right? Where it's like there's 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 these reminders around you, right? Like like having a pet and then knowing that you're they're gonna be with you for their entire life, right? Is sort of a constant reminder of your own mortality, right? And like I feel this way about um having a wife. It's like I have a pet human that I have to take care of, right? <laughs> and she feels the same way about me, right? More so from her perspective. But it's <laughs> but um it's this person that i'm going to end up watching i'm going to end up watching her die right and that's a terrifying and and sad thought but it's built into this already this mechanism that i've already like built for myself right where i am attempting to go for as long as i can i'm going to bring her along with me on that journey right and whatever time we have is is not has not been guaranteed to us so it's everything is precious in that way so it's i don't know it's all about how i guess how you how do you spin it to yourself in a way but i i don't want to i feel uncomfortable simply saying it's not going to happen or i don't have to think about it right i've seen how that's ravaged other people in my life right where where they have taken that approach and struggled and and scraped and like screamed and cried all the way to the end mm-hmm. right and it makes it just isn't dignified right and it, it colors them in a way that makes you um really want to do things differently for yourself what is the philosophy where they say that they have a cup and they imagine the cup is already broken i think that's either Taoism or um buddhism let me find that yes i really do like this i'm glad you brought this up um, it's from a, uh, psychotherapy from a Buddhist perspective, um, by Mark Epstein. And, uh, the quote goes like this, uh, you see this goblet asks, uh, Akin Cha, the Thai meditation master. For me, this glass is already broken. I enjoy it. I drink out of it. It holds my water admirably, sometimes even reflecting the sun in beautiful patterns. If I should tap it, it has a lovely ring to it. 
But when I put this glass on the shelf and the wind knocks it over or my elbow brushes it off the table and it falls to the ground and shatters, I say, of course, when I understand that the glass is already broken, every moment with it is precious. Yeah, I, I love I think this about, quote. I think about that all the time. Yeah, because uh, and especially at this point in my life where I've spent a considerable amount of time trading my life in exchange for money, it, where I, a lot of that time is spent in ways that I will not remember or ever care about or cherish at all. Uh, sure. Being able to c- contrast that with the time that I spend with my loved ones, um, every moment, no matter what we're doing, the value of that time to me is uh, shoots through the roof because I understand that it's not guaranteed. Every time I see my loved ones, potentially it could be the last time I see them. And that sounds morbid, but the way I look at it is I'm like, wow, I'm experiencing one of the, what I deem to be one of the most valuable experiences of my life right now by being able to share time with these people that I care about. So I, I think that is kind of downstream from this quote where it's like, I already understand I'm going to lose everybody. <laughs> so anytime <laughs> right. I get with them is, you know, I, I feel like I uh, appreciate it. Yes. And I think it's taken me a long time to get to that point, honestly, because um, I didn't always feel that way. And, but I, but I do feel that way now. I feel like I, uh, you know, every moment like that, right. It's like, it's another one in the bank, right. It's another thing that I can, um, uh, I can st- step away from him. Like I, I got, well, I got one more. Right. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's sort of just like, how many times can I do this? You know, like how often and, um, and what, and what does that mean? You know? And I think the quality of those, of those interactions certainly matter. Um, uh, you know, and, you know, time away certainly makes the heart, heart grow fonder too, but it's also, uh, just special just to be with people that you love and to, to have that. And if that's um, what you decided life is all about and what it's for, then there's no reason not to, you know, indulge in that in every moment, right? And to, and to care for that in every moment because it, it is precious because you won't always be able to do it. Okay. Wow. Um, <laughs> let's talk about some other stuff. So this movie has a couple of, interest is it comes out in a very interesting time uh, this movie comes out in a very interesting time in my life as um the narrator in fight club says uh first of all the pandemic is uh a big part of this right um the uh, a deadly cloud covers the town it's toxic it's toxic it's airborne it's a whole event um uh, there's there's all these throwaway lines about wearing your protective face covering wild speculation about what the situation actually is, and even some fear that the solution may be even more terrifying than the problem. And I think White Noise does a really good job of capturing the uncertainty of an event like this. I mean, it shows just how far people will go to believe nothing is wrong. <laughs> but I will say this. I think the truth is stranger than fiction in this case. The wild reactions and insane theories that surrounded the coronavirus pandemic were far more than what Don DeLillo imagined for his story. It's kind of a it's kind of quaint to think that this would be the worst part of it, right? Um, yeah. What do you think about this? Yeah, I I agree. It it maybe tainted my experience of the airborne toxic event because I was like, so 
<laughs> you know, just, like, I, I, um, I did feel a genuine fear of the future during the airborne toxic event. It felt like we were marching towards some unfathomable disaster as like things continue to mount up through the events of like the second portion of this movie. And that impending doom made me feel clammy and uncomfortable for what felt like an eternity of suspense but it ended up not being scary at all it it, like i wasted all that energy being scared of something that ended without me even seeing the end coming and just to quickly return to the topic of death i think this is actually really interesting commentary on death uh, because there's almost no sense in spending all this energy being afraid of it because it might end before you know it. You know, I, I could spend my whole life being scared of death or I could spend my life being carefree and not that concerned about it and get hit by a car and then I didn't even have to think about death. I died. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When you worry, you suffer twice. Exactly. That's what I always say. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so uh, no, I think, it's, I think it's absolutely true. And I really do like the way that it ends. It ends exactly the same way in the book and the movie where it's just a sentence. He says, a nine, we were... If we were in quarantine for nine days and that and then we went back home and that was it like and then they like they talk about it like it's you know they reference it and everything and they talk about the uh microorganisms in the air and all that stuff but um it's kind of hanging in the background but it was never really that big of a deal in the first place nobody died from it everyone uh, freaked out right it seemed like a really big deal but they took care of it and now it's over so uh I guess life moves on and uh, all that. Um, one of my favorite quotes from the movie uh, is, is this one where they're all quarantined in their second location. Um, and a guy starts, uh, he, he kind of starts in on this, uh, this monologue uh, because he's so upset. Nothing on network, not a word, not a picture. On the Glassboro channel, we rate 52 words by actual count. No film footage. No live report. Does this thing happen so often that nobody cares? We were scared to death. Still are. We left our homes. Drove through a rainstorm. We saw that deadly specter. That death ship as it sailed across the sky. Are they telling us it was insignificant? Do they think this is just television? Don't they know it's real? Shouldn't the streets be crawling with cameras and reporters shouldn't we be yelling out the window at them leave us alone we've been through enough already haven't we earned the right to despise their idiot questions look at us in this place we are quarantined we are like lepers in medieval times everything we love and worked for is under serious threat even if there hasn't been great loss of life don't we deserve attention for our suffering? Our terror isn't fear news! Isn't fear news? Amazing. <laughs> uh, incredible line. Don't we deserve attention for our suffering? Hilarious, dude. Freaking amazing. This is like one of the... Uh, the ironies of the of the coronavirus like happening during the age of social media is that you knew how everybody thought and no <laughs> you had nobody to tell that about what was going on to you you know you're like oh man my life's been so hard i have to do this and this and this it's like yeah me too everyone's doing it <laughs> 
Well, I guess it was interesting to me that it's the subject of the news that's so desperate to be reported on uh, because I, I could easily see it going the opposite direction where they're like, is our suffering nothing but a spectacle for these newscasters? Why must they accost us with their cameras? Why must, must we be suffocated by microphones shoved down our throats to capture every agonizing second of peril and suffering? This is an outrage. The news has gone too far uh, versus this guy who's yeah, like, yeah. the news hasn't gone far enough. <laughs> exactly which is like he wants to be angry at the news like he's like why aren't they here to for us to yell at them why aren't they here to annoy us i want to i want to be here so i can so i can tell them to go away <laughs> hilarious dude freaking amazing um uh. one other like just uh, just a little easter egg here um they are in they're currently in iron city and they mentioned in the book a couple of times that uh there is no there's no media in iron city um, right, the, the murderer who was in jail in Iron City would never become like a famous murderer because they don't have a media presence. Exactly, exactly. You got it. Um, I don't know exactly what that's supposed to mean. They don't really expand on it too much. But um, anyway, just, just an interesting little element there because uh, he, what he's referencing here where they aren't reporting on him is like an, an aspect or a feature of Iron City. Um, yeah, I just think this is amazing. Uh, so freaking great. <laughs> Anyway, so um, I think that this movie has a couple of missed opportunities to talk about. And I think because Bombback is doing an homage instead of an updated story, he sort of misses out on these opportunities. Um, things that are relevant today, more relevant today than they were in 1985 when, when the book came out. Um, I honestly think this movie could have been better if it was told in like modern day or had been more closely adapted toward modern like today's ideas um not just like a retelling of white noise from 1985 because uh, even though it does have resonance with today i think there are certain things you could pick up on that would be uh it would tie it to today which would justify its existence in 2023 <laughs> one of those things is hitler so jack is a leading figure in hitler studies right known around the world uh for his expertise on nazism um and Nazism and fascism are back in a big way in the 2020s. Uh, I would have loved if this movie had featured an actual Nazi or someone who thinks Jack's love of Hitler was more than simply academic. Um, I feel like there's a lot to play with here, right? Uh, you know, protests maybe at the university because uh, of their because of Jack's uh, employment there or their obsession with Nazism, right? Um, clearly, I, I think this is supposed to symbolize Americans. Uh, um, disassociation with reality, <laughs> uh, our ability to um, uh, segment anything um, uh, like uh, into something else, um, into media, into something to consume, uh, more so than uh, the deal with the with the reality of the situation. Um, but I don't know. What do you think? I, I think part of it was that Hitler, like, there's this idea that um, that Murray postulates that killing people gains you life credit. Uh, and yeah. if that was true, then Hitler would be immortal, right? He he's like responsible for the death of so many uh, that it's like he's completely transcended death. And the fact that 
Jack has made, committed his life to uh, continuing to talk about his, uh, Hitler and, and just like go over the history of Hitler. That is further evidence of Hitler's immortality, earned immortality, right? So uh, if somebody is completely petrified by death and, and obsessed with defeating death or some, finding a solution to death, uh, maybe Hitler has something to teach him since Hitler uh, is so infamous that he'll, he'll never act, be forgotten and thus never die. So I, I think that's a, a big part of it as well. I agree. There is a complete lack of any objection to the idea or the ideas or kind of this, uh, uh, you know, celebrity view of Hitler in this movie. So I, yeah, I agree if this was a more contemporary, uh, like movie that that would be demanded. I think you would have to have that. Otherwise it would be absurd. I mean, maybe it was absurd here too, but, uh, that's kind of what this movie goes with is, uh, kind of being absurdist right uh, but one thing that i thought was <laughs> um an idea that came to me at when i realized that jack gladney was the leading figure in hitler studies was i was thinking that this he potentially could be a new literally me archetype uh you know you people watch american psycho and they think that they literally are patrick bateman or they watch joker and they're like i'm literally whatever the joker's name is in that movie so like jack gladney is but he's like a new archetype that different like uh disillusioned men can imagine themselves to be because he's a dad uh he's got a troubled marriage he fears death. Uh, he invented Hitlerology. I feel like these are a lot of things that guys could be like, that's that's me. Wait, that's me. That's I'm seeing myself. <laughs> I'm literally obsessed with Hitler. <laughs> also, he gets he buys a gun and and kill and tries to kill somebody. So I like my projection for how this movie will be remembered is that uh, Jack Gladney is a dark horse to join the likes of Patrick Bateman and the Joker as uh you know, problematic characters that uh, troubled men identify with for the wrong reason. That is so funny. I would love it. That's true. <laughs> I would absolutely love that. I, would, I so I hundred percent support that. <laughs> um, I also think it would be interesting if this movie was made in a more contemporary setting. If uh, they would somehow try to tie in a Kanye West type character, mm. uh, who is like so prominent but also so unapologetic about uh upholding like or not upholding but like glorifying hitler like going against the tide and saying that they actually like hitler right 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 right. very interesting that is interesting yeah because yeah it's been that has been one of the more shocking yes turns just we 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 live in a simulation type things where it's like oh like one of the most successful artists of all time is just openly uh, like supporting hitler like (laughs) that was <laughs> that was not on my bingo card. No, definitely you know? not. I, yeah, I wonder what Jack Gladly would say about about uh, Kanye West. It's interesting to think about. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that I think this movie misses out on is drugs. So, um, Dilar, which is Babette's drug, um, is it has parallels to real life drugs, right? Something like heroin or ecstasy. Uh, these people, these make people feel good no matter what the circumstance. They can keep you from feeling anything but pleasure. Dilar is a professionally made drug. It looks like any other white top uh, tablet, so it's pretty similar to like something like Oxycontin. Um, the opioid epidemic and popularity of fentanyl has led to changes in the stigma surrounding drug addi- use and addiction. And you know, Dilar is also enjoyed by the upper middle class, so it makes it similar to something like Xanax or Adderall. Um, and all of that is happening right now. 
Uh, any or all of these things could be commented on about how Dialar is real, but it goes by a different name, and its effects are horrible and well-documented. Um, a nod in this direction would go a long way in justifying, I think, the existence of this movie in this time period. I think that we're supposed to draw our own conclusions here about Dialar is probably supposed to re re represent any type of drug, right? Any sort of pharmaceutical solution to the problem of fear of death. But uh, I think that... Um, Today, like more than ever, right, we are dealing with a, a drug problem in, the, in this country, people dying from overdoses and things like that. So, uh, you know, tying that together here, you know, putting it in the world, I think um, might have been something good. But maybe that's maybe I'm missing the point here. Maybe these, these things are supposed to be extra planar, right? They're not supposed to be part of the real world. Uh, white noise is supposed to exist outside of it. But um, I don't know. I, I would have appreciated. A more direct comparison to today's problems um, uh, instead of 1985's problems. Sure. And uh, I think something else that resonates from the topic of drugs is this idea that drugs can turn you into somebody who is unrecognizable to your loved ones, sure. uh, which is a horrifying thought. Um, it's something that anytime I'm confronted with the decision to you use pharmaceuticals or not, uh, you know, has to be considered. When when I got my wisdom teeth taken out, I got put on some painkiller. I don't remember exactly which one it was, but it was a strong painkiller. And I did not like the person I became <laughs> when I was on those drugs. And it's not completely evident to you while you, while it's happening, but you know, the people around you who are not on drugs definitely recognize it. And the pain that Jack felt you know, trying to cope with having his partner, you know, his Baba become someone who is not what he expects when he says that like the nature of Baba or like the point of Baba is to be right. completely transparent and to be open and for her to have betrayed that while under the influence of drugs was one of the more heartbreaking parts of that scene. So I think it's kind of a cautionary tale to say, you know, don't don't play with these things. These things are powerful and can cause a lot of disruption in your life. Right. And it, I mean, it shows the desperation that Babette was going through. Right. Because I think that feeling right or that fear is present in anybody who's doing any sort of drug. Right. Is that this will change me or this will uh, affect, you know, make me crazy or or whatever right um and there's 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 that's well documented people when you're deciding to do any sort of drug that's something that people will think about so her willingness to sacrifice that in in because of her fear um certainly colors her in a certain way okay well let's move into our quotable moments section and i believe you have one for us joey yes let's do this don't think of a car crash in a movie as a violent act. No, these collisions are part of a long tradition of American optimism, a reaffirmation of traditional values and beliefs, a celebration. Think of these crashes like you would Thanksgiving and the 4th of July. On these days, we don't mourn the dead or rejoice in miracles. No, these are days of secular optimism, of self-celebration. Each crash, is meant to be better than the last. There's a constant upgrading of tools, skills, a meeting of challenges. An American film director says, I want this 
flatbed truck to do a double mid-air somersault that produces an orange ball of fire in a 36-foot diameter. The movie breaks away from complicated human passions to show us something elemental, something loud and fiery and head-on. Watch any car crash in any American movie. It is a high-spirited moment, like old-fashioned stunt flying, you know, walking on wings. The people who stage these crashes are able to capture a lightheartedness, a carefree enjoyment that car crashes in foreign movies can never approach. You might say, but what about all that blood and glass? The screeching rubber, the crushed bodies, the severed limbs, what kind of optimism is this? Look past the violence, I say. There is a wonderful brimming spirit of innocence and fun. <laughs> Um, <laughs> this is great. I, I just really love the way that he talks. Uh, Murray's so freaking funny. Um, the, I, I'm not entirely sure what the car crash is supposed to be a metaphor for in this situation. I think we can really take Murray at his word here. That he, it really is a, it's an example of, um, technical expertise from a skilled, like film production. and um something spectacular to watch right it's like people say like watching a car crash or watching you know um a train derail or whatever right it's something you can't look away from and um that's that's how i think something that i think uh film directors take quite literally <laughs> it's something that you <laughs> want to watch and want to see and um it's the, yeah sure there's like sometimes like blood and gore and stuff involved in it but oftentimes it's just two, you know, solid bodies running into each other, the crumpling, the noise, all of that. It can be quite satisfying, right? And it's a, um, I don't know, it, I think it kind of evokes a certain, uh, you know, um, fun to it. But I think there's something, I think there is something here specifically about cars, because this movie does feature a lot of car stuff. And I was and I was hoping to talk to you about this because I know you have opinions about cars and how often we rely on cars. This movie is like a celebration of car culture. Um, it, it, this movie one of the most American movies we've ever watched. It's just how <laughs> how much it 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 takes from uh, American culture. Um, but there's when they are escaping from uh, the uh, airborne toxic event, right? Um, they rush out in their car and then they immediately are in line, like a long ass line of other cars. And then when they're leaving, right, they go through this whole thing where they're tra like going through the woods and they end up in a river and they're almost going to float down the river and then they get out of it and then they bust through a cornfield and then they just pull into the line. And it's it's like a classic like <laughs> guy pulling out of a um you know, onto a strode, right? Like he's, he's waving and the other guy's like waves at him and he just lets him in. Right. It's like, it's just normal <laughs> car behavior. Um, so it, it's, I think the car crash in particular is appealing to Americans, partly because we're so familiar with them. Uh, we're, we're in cars all the time. Everybody owns a car. You can picture your own car going into a crash. Um, so it's, it's kind of like <laughs> a, uh, it's sort of a real point of violence that, um, or, or spectacle that um, you can enjoy uh, yourself, I guess, or imagine easily uh, because it, it's something that um, is close to you, right? If you're a person that never drives a car or, um, you know, is in a very walkable place or, or whatever, right? Um, this is a more uh, 
foreign concept to you. This is something that it's harder for you to imagine. But if you drive a car, often it's likely you've seen crashes, been in crashes, um, seen the aftermath of crashes, uh, maybe even often. So it's... Um, you've been in traffic anticipating oh, yeah. the horrors of a bad crash only to see something that's not really that interesting and right. everyone slowed down traffic just to rubberneck. God, I hate that. <laughs> a universal experience yeah well the other thing too i feel like uh, a lot of this movie at least the middle section of it happens inside of the car where the, the family is all within arm's reach of each other you know right. it's an opportunity for the the family to just exist it's a familiar setting uh for uh, families and they even look out their window into other cars to look for guidance on how to react uh one car is like oh they don't look worried and it's like oh but these people in this car they look really worried <laughs> so it's it's just another way to exist as an american is within your car now and also another universal experience was every single person who drove their car out of their driveway to escape the airborne toxic event crashed into their trash cans <laughs> yes, all the trash cans are knocked over yeah the, the whole road is lined with trash cans that are spilled over and like every car we saw pull out including the the gladneys or gladleys whatever gladneys uh smashed through their own trash cans i thought it was hilarious it is hilarious that's how you know they were in a hurry they didn't avoid the trash cans <laughs> really good stuff yeah um uh yeah i love to see the car featured uh, so prominently um in this movie uh just another element of white noise uh, in the background of our lives is the constant uh, reliance on cars absolutely Okay, I think that is going to bring us to the end of our discussion on white noise. As we do at the end of every episode, we will now deliver our ratings. Joey, what rating do you want to give to white noise? I give this uh, movie an ominous diagnosis from a machine. <laughs> well, I don't know if that means anything. <laughs> um, it could mean something, though. <laughs> right, it could be the worst news you've ever known, but I guess we'll have to wait. Until we're 70 to know for sure. Um, I give this movie a dark pair of sunglasses to wear while you're teaching Hitlerology. Excellent. Very nice. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it. White noise. Another one in the books for affable chat. Joey, what's next? Next, we are doing uh, This is Spinal Tap, the mockumentary. Yes. I've been looking forward to this one. I've heard this movie goes to 11. So I yeah. am highly anticipating uh, watching this one. Me too. Subscribe to us on iTunes, uh, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Affablechat.com is your new favorite website on the internet. That's where you can find the latest from us on all our social media accounts, including Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. And you can even uh, distract yourself from the looming concept of death by sending us an email at affablechat at gmail.com. If you like this episode, then tell a friend about it. All you have to say is, death comes from us all. Uh, but how do we deal with this fact? I mean, uh, have you considered listening to Affable Chat? <laughs> Affable Chat is live on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Twitch. That's every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Uh, an eternal Twitch stream that will always be there and never end, uh, unlike your life, which will certainly end in death. <laughs> That's going to do it for Apple Chat. Uh, I'm Benjamin. And I'm Joey. Thanks for listening.